0: Hello, I'm Kenneth cookier a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's show, medical scientists say compounds found in the blood of the Komodo dragon might be used for their antibiotic properties, such as against hospital infections.
1: When one dragon bites another, which does happen, the dragons do not succumb to the bacterial infections that kill off their prey.
0: Also coming up microprocessors are the brains of many digital devices but switch the power off and the chip will forget everything. But now researchers think they've found a way to make them work both as a processor and as a memory chip.
2: It does seem possible that you then have a new form of computing that arises that can go beyond our familiar zeros and ones.
0: And lastly, did life form on earth 3,700 million years ago? Fossilized remains of bacteria
3: unearthed in Canada appear to say yes, it may have. Amazingly, those fossils, were called stromatolites, were created by photosynthesizing bacteria. These beasts are iron-oxidizing bacteria, very different indeed.
0: First though, mythology is rich with tales of dragons and the magical properties that their innards possess. Among the most valuable bits is their blood. Supposedly capable of curing respiratory and digestive disorders, it was valuable and widely sought, at least in legend. Now, a new study is suggesting that the notion of dragon blood being medicinal is much closer to fact than fiction. I'm joined by the Economist science correspondent Matt Kaplan to explain more. Matt, first tell us how could it be possible there are no such things as dragons? <laughs>
1: Well, the thing that's wonderful is there are such things as dragons and they live on the island of Komodo. They're the largest living lizards on the planet. These things are serious. They're they're big predators. They take down things like water buffalo and and deer. Uh, I mean, they don't breathe fire, but man, they're they're big predators.
0: So, how large are Komodo dragons?
1: You're talking about animals that typically are 2 meters but in some cases up to 3 meters long.
0: And what is the report found?
1: The interesting thing about the the Komodo dragon that, that the researchers were really fascinated with in the beginning was Komodo dragons don't go and rip things apart when they make an attack. They take a single bite out of the throat, and then if that bite doesn't kill the animal straight away, the dragon does not continue with the struggle. It lets this toxic mix of mild poison... And bacteria in its saliva cause septic shock and kill the animal slowly after hours so that the the dragon can just waddle after it and eat it at its leisure. So these researchers were really fascinated because when one dragon bites another, which does happen, the dragons do not succumb to the bacterial infections that kill off their prey. And they thought, well, there must be something in their blood that is preventing them from catching those infections. And when they took a closer look, that's exactly what they found.
0: So how did they do that?
1: They started by doing an analysis of peptides in the blood that they collected from dragons that were living on farms in Florida. The thing that animals that are really resilient against bacterial infections have are specific peptides that have characteristics like being hydrophobic and other traits that are well cataloged in medical literature. The researchers went through and looked at the peptides that were in these blood samples, and they tagged the ones that had the traits that were very similar to other antimicrobial peptides that are currently known about, and then they experimented with them.
0: And how might we use these findings in medicine?
1: When you take these antimicrobial peptides and expose bacteria to them, you can see how the bacteria respond. And the thing that these guys did that was really unbelievable was they took the parent strains of bacteria that are often associated with resistant infections. These are the kinds of bugs that are living in hospitals that infect people that no antibiotics can take down. And what they found was that with a couple of these strains, the researchers were able to see that the antimicrobial peptides that were in the dragon blood were very effective at holding these bacterial strains at bay. Now, a lot more work will need to be done to turn these into antibiotics that can begin to be given to people. But the notion is that there really is something here that could be mined effectively and used.
0: So when do you think there may be drugs that would apply to human beings?
1: I think you're looking at years, Ken. The the practice of taking something out of the blood of a Komodo dragon and turning it into a commercially available medical product is huge. But the important thing here is these guys identified 48 antimicrobial peptides in the blood of Komodo dragons, and they were able to knock it down to eight peptides that looked like they would be particularly promising against the bacterial species that cause us the most trouble. And of those eight, seven of them, when they they grew them in petri dishes, they found that they were able to really keep the bacterial cultures at bay, which is unbelievable.
0: Now, speaking of unbelievable, Matt, you're the author of a book called Science of the Magical, which actually describes these sorts of things, but from the point of view of mythology and legend. What do you think of what you wrote in the book now that you're seeing science mirror art?
1: You know, there are so many myths and legends that actually do have kernels of truth to them. We see it in the Odyssey, for example, when Odysseus goes to the island where he meets Circe. There are all these descriptions of drugs that she uses that when you look at the botanical literature have a basis in science. Same thing when Odysseus consumes an herb that prevents him from being ensorcelled by the witch. This just goes on and on. We see so many stories where there are actually kernels of fact in fiction. In many ways, it suggests we should probably pay a lot more attention to the stories of old than we often do.
0: That's great. Listen, Matt, thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Ken. Take care.
0: Next up, a microprocessor is the brain of many computing devices. But switch the power off... And this chip will forget everything. It's not memory, it's simply the processor, it's the chip. So devices need to rely on other different sorts of chips that work as a memory, the memory chip. However, that is inefficient because shuffling data between two types of chips costs time and energy. Now, however, a group of researchers working in Singapore and Germany think they have found a way to make a single chip work as both a processor and a memory chip. Joining me in the studio is The Economist's Innovation Editor, Paul Markley. Hi, Ken. Hey. So, Paul, my first question is, what exactly are they developing?
2: What they are developing is a way of using a new type of chip that's coming to the market. And that is, in fact, a memory chip, one that um, can retain the memory of data once it's been switched off, unlike the other sort that doesn't. And this chip works on a different principle to existing microprocessors and memory devices because it doesn't use a transistor. And a transistor is basically a switch which gives us the ones and zeros of the digital age. So if it doesn't use a transistor... What does it use? It uses a tiny cell, which is constructed a little bit like a battery. It only has two electrodes with some material in the middle. And what it does is produce a change in resistance. So a high resistance equals a one and a low resistance equals a zero. So that gives you your digital base. And having only two electrodes, they're fairly easy to construct and are low-powered and look like becoming the memory device for the future. And lots of big companies are currently bringing this new type of memory called resistive random access memory to market. And what these scientists in Singapore and Germany have done and looked at this and say, hang on, these, these are pretty quick, these machines. They're not as fast as the fastest processors, but they could be capable of processing data as well as storing it. So you then have the option of having one chip
0: to replace them all. Okay. So what's the science behind it? I don't want you to get into the architecture of microprocessors and chips, but very generally, how does it work?
2: If you apply a pulse of power to one of these RERAMs, these resistive random access memory chips, you get a change in resistance, And that change in resistance is caused by a movement of ions, which are charged particles. And that movement stays there once the power has been switched off. So hence, they have a long-term memory. They work like a flash memory, in fact, as we already have in our computers. And that is different to a
0: transistor that switch electrons. But if the electrodes, although they they can act as a processor, are not as fast as transistors... Where would we use these chips? Because certainly we all like processing power that is quick.
2: Well, they have two benefits, as I said. One is they are very small, probably cheaper to make, and very low power. That means you have a greater packing density. So for all these small devices that are coming to market, you know, we're trying to make smaller cell phones, sensors, the Internet of Things, you could then have one chip in there that works as both memory and processor, which would allow you to make smaller and more compact devices. So that's a great advantage there. Secondly, of course, what uh, this particular team of scientists, scientists in Singapore and Germany have done, have established that you don't actually just have to have two states of resistance. You could have more. You could have four, five, six, possibly even 10 just as a digital number. And that enables you to move beyond our binary digits of zero and one for processing, but all the way up to higher base number systems, perhaps even a straight decimal system that we use every day.
0: And by doing that, it'll be able to process data far, far faster than ever before. Well, you'll be able to
2: do sorts of calculations that are extremely difficult to do with just a decimal system and open up all sorts of possibilities. So that's much more in the future. But it does seem possible that you then have a new form of computing that arises that can go beyond our familiar zeros and ones.
0: Okay, Paul, I love it.
2: I'm all in. I want one. When can I get one? Well, you'll be able to get the memory chips. You'll start, they're already beginning to come to market. So our flash devices in the next few years will have these um, resistance-type chips storing memory. The next stage is, can this be developed commercially? Well, you wouldn't need more software and operating instructions for these chips. That has yet to be developed, so that could be several years away. But the chips themselves, just as memory, we will start, well, they're already coming to the market.
0: That sounds great. And where are they going into? What sort of device?
2: Um, They will be used in any sort of device that has a uh, memory in it, a flash-type memory. Uh, Many of our laptop computers are no longer being fitted up with hard drives, which are a fairly slow form of uh, storing data, and now have these flash memories, which are much faster. So we'll see them in devices like that and in cell phones and in basically any form of electronics out there. I mean, you open them up, they've all got all these little black boxes, and suddenly, instead of having lots of little black boxes representing all these chips, on the
0: circuit. You might just have one. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you again. If you have any little thoughts on the blood of Komodo dragons or big thoughts on possible microchips, package them up and send them in an email to us at radio at And you can tweet us at economistradio. Finally, when did life first form on Earth? Researchers from an international team led by the University College London have unearthed startling new fossil evidence in Canada. The answer could be as much as 3,770 million years ago. Joining me on the line is the economist science correspondent Anunno Bhattacharya. Hello, Anuno. Hi, Ken. So, Anunno, first, what did the team actually
3: unearth? The team were looking at samples from the Greenstone Belt which is a stretch of ancient stone on the shores of the Hudson Bay in Canada and these rocks are known to date from between 3.8 and 4.2 billion years ago. Just to put that in context we have a fairly good idea that the earth formed from interstellar gas about 4.6 billion years ago so these rocks are very old indeed. And so they got the rocks, and then what did they do? So what they found when they peered at the rocks was the tiny filaments. Some were corkscrew-shaped, and others were sort of branching networks attached to a a sort of central blob. Now that was interesting because it bore more than a passing resemblance to iron-oxidizing bacteria that live around and in and on deep sea vents at the bottom of the ocean.
0: So it would suggest that actually life began soon after the Earth was created.
3: It would. Our oldest evidence for life before this were dates back to a rock formation in Western Australia. And those fossils were about 3.7 billion years old. Amazingly, those fossils were called stromatolites, were created by photosynthesizing bacteria. These beasts that uh, the team from University College London have now found are iron oxidizing bacteria, very different beasts indeed. Now what that tells us is that not only was there life on the surface of the ocean, as these photosynthesizing bacteria were likely close to the surface where they had access to sunlight, but there was also life deep in the ocean.
0: This is incredible. Where does the life come from?
3: We don't know for sure. One theory is that life originated in these deep sea vents. They formed out of organic chemicals that found little niches in these vents, which served to encapsulate them in a sort of fake cell membrane. And then they started reproducing and life began from there.
0: Okay, I think most people would be very interested to understand how do you date bacteria that far
3: back? Well, this is where the research is going to be controversial. What they looked at was various isotopes of chemicals that were in the rocks. Now, living organisms tend to metabolize the lighter version of carbon uh, simply because the energy required to break the bonds of carbon is lower and uh, life tends to be efficient thanks to evolution and so uh, they looked at the carbon mixtures there in the in the rock and they found that it was indicative that they had biological source the controversy is that uh, similar structures might be formed by geological processes which have nothing to do with life. It's a possibility. The researchers have tried hard to rule out these possibilities, but other scientists will be looking at this carefully to, to see if it's still possible that uh, biology had nothing to do with, uh, with the structures. Secondly, the idea that these are bacteria is going to be very difficult to support they're making that case on the basis of the shapes of these filaments that they've seen and resemblances to fossils of these bacteria found in younger rocks and that's going to be a stretch to really nail the case what they're going to have to do is far more chemical analysis to see if they see signs of biological compounds in their rocks. And that's an expensive and time-consuming process, which uh, they're going to get underway soon.
0: I don't know. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. If you'd like to know more about medicine from Komodo dragons, revolutionary new microchips, and ancient bacteria, then don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you're a regular listener to Babbage, consider sharing us on social media, rating us on the App Store, or subscribing to the newspaper. In London, this is The Economist.
3: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools,